0: You're listening to Money and Meaning. Unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm Liz Maxwell, your host. Today's episode features another live recording from a recent SOCAP 365 event that we did in Boulder, Colorado. This event was sponsored by Veris Wealth Partners and PAX World Funds, two leaders in the impact investing space who are committed to furthering conversation and action around financing climate solutions. We built a great event with an all-star and very funny set of panelists. I think you'll really enjoy their conversation. They're very human and down to earth and to really enjoy talking about this topic. And they unpack together many of the ways that folks enter and engage in the climate finance space, applying a gender lens, ESG screening, directly investing in the energy transition, land conversation, and several other strategies some of the solutions are more radical than others, but we believe we need everyone on board to finance the most important environmental challenge that we're facing today. So the focus of our panel today is really to open up strategies and the scope of possibilities for ways the finance community can get involved and needs to be a core player in accelerating solutions to our global climate crisis. I also want to give a shout out to part of this event that was not recorded and that you won't hear on the podcast today, but we actually had filmmaker Jeff Orlowski attend the event and give a presentation before this panel, whereas the panel was really focused around financing climate solutions. Jeff showed us some clips of documentaries that he's been building for years with a great team. Two documentaries are Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral and you can find both of them on Netflix and all over the web. You can find lots more information about them. I highly encourage you to check them out. They give a really meaningful storytelling context, not only to this episode, but of course the global climate crisis that we're in. So Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral track those two different biological ecosystems and really document the ways the ice is receding in the Arctic and the how rapidly the coral is changing in the oceans. So. That's some context that we did at the live event. Definitely encourage you to check out those films. We'll get right into the panel after I remind you that SOCAP 18 is coming up in October 23rd to 26th in San Francisco. You can use the code SOCAP podcast for an extra $250 off your ticket. Um, And we encourage you to get those tickets soon. Prices go up the sooner to the conference that we get. That's it. Please enjoy this episode.
1: One of the reasons why I push for this to be happening this summer, personally, is I feel like in many ways we're leaders as a community in Boulder, Colorado around environmental issues. I also felt like we hit a lull a little bit, and our goal is to revive and get people moving forward more aggressively, and hopefully we're achieving that a little bit together today. So so thank you for making the time. Um, Today, we're going to talk about finance, climate, action. Very dear topic to us at Wealth Partners. Um, Quickly, background on me. Is uh, Again, my name is Casey Verbeck. I'll be moderating today's panel. I'm also a partner at the firm and managing director of marketing and business development at the firm. We're a national firm. Uh, we have offices in San Francisco, New York City, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and also Boulder, Colorado. And uh, the firm itself is referred to as an impact wealth management group. Uh, we're celebrating 11 years this month. It just dawned on me. And my colleague, Allison Pyatt, who serves Colorado with me, is with us here today as well. And we are approaching $1.2 billion in assets fully devoted to impact investing. So that's something we're very proud of, Uh, working with individuals, families, and private foundations primarily. Uh, Clearly, this is a topic dear to our hearts. Uh, We invest in a variety of thematic areas, but every one of our clients has a climate focus component of their portfolio. And we invest across all asset classes uh, through um, through a variety of different lenses. So with that, though, it's always helpful to understand who's in the room, because I really want to check in with everyone. We want this to be a participatory conversation. So I'm just going to be a facilitator. I'm looking really forward to just asking the questions here really soon and uh, and highlighting our great panelists. First, let's just go down the line here. And uh, if you can just do a quick introduction, maybe two minutes tops, and uh, maybe share something with the audience that they don't know about you yet, because I'm sure everyone's read the bios.
2: So my name is Jules Korthenhorst. I'm the CEO of Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, an organization with a big office here in Boulder, but our roots are in the Aspen Valley, where 35 years ago, Amory started us leading Think and Do Tank in the energy transition. Uh, my background, I um, have been working on climate change and the energy transition for the last 10 years. Uh, before that, I spent 20 years in the private sector, first 10 years with Shell, and then 10 years uh, in private equity. Um, and I'm married to Searle who's sitting over there, and have four kids. <laughs> and uh, the thing you don't know, but you might guess, is that why am I here? What is end getting me out of bed in the world? Um, in the morning to do what I do, and that is those four children. It's the realization that uh, the future that Jeff's earlier movies paint is not the world that I want my kids to grow up in, uh, so that's why I do what I do.
3: I'm Julie Gordy. I'm Senior Vice President of Sustainable Investing at a firm that you could either call Pax World Funds or Impax Asset Management. It's the same thing. We, What I do is I oversee the environmental, social, and governance research for all of our funds, Equity, fixed income, solutions fund, themes fund—all of them have a sustainability bent. They're—they they all have a climate angle to them. Um, and I also oversee the company engagement. We specialize in engaging on climate and gender issues. Um, we think those are actually linked. Like a lot of you know, like people have to, you know, walk all day for water right now there are going to be in Warsaw, and those are mostly women, right? And I do a lot of, I. if I had to give myself a title, I am either a MythBuster or a vampire slayer <laughs> or a
1: mongoose.
3: And, I so start I with the mongoose. So read rikki-tikki-tavi, anybody? Remember that? Remember what the motto of the mongoose family was? Run and find out. So I'm a researcher. I'm a nerd at heart. I'm also, we can make good decisions in this society, but... We can't start with different facts. We need to start with the same facts. Mm-hmm. So, I believe anytime I'm confronting a question like this, I run home to mama, and mama is the science. The vampire slayer, I have been the, the idea that sustainable investing is something that you do if you're a bunny hugger, but you're going to get lower returns. So, please feel free to invest in Philip Morris, and then you can give all that money to the American Cancer Association. That is a vampire, and it will suck your blood, and I have been driving states into its heart every day for the past 15 years. My daughter is getting a PhD in climate science at CU, so I believe in dedicating my whole
0: family to
4: this. I'm Jake Davis. I am uh, the manager of freshwater investments at the Nature Conservancy as part of our impact investing business unit called NatureVest. And my role is supporting our country programs and state chapters and identifying ways in which forms of capital, uh, other than philanthropy, can be used to advance our conservation work. I don't think I have anything nearly as entertaining as <laughs> Julie, so I apologize. Nobody but, else does either. <laughs> although it turns out we're almost neighbors. Sorry. That's actually, that's good to uh, know. I feel sorry. safe for that <laughs> way. Uh, Julie and I are almost neighbors, and we both went to college in Michigan, I think at the same time. I spend a lot of time talking to investors about how the investment products that we're offering, uh, how much they have to give up in return to meet the conservation goals that uh, we're talking about. And um, they, they frankly just never believe me when I say, well, not much or really any, because we really firmly believe that there is a significant amount of value to be created in taking care of the land and water that makes nature and people thrive.
1: Immediately, when I think about statements brought into conversations by Siri saying we need $1 trillion in committed capital on an annualized basis to really turn this corner. And uh, RMI has done a tremendous amount of research. um, And I'm really curious to hear from you right now. If you feel like we're making progress and where we're making progress, please highlight what, you know, with all of us here today.
2: I was saying earlier that the life of people in my job is a little bit manic depressive. There are many moments that we look at the movies that Jeff is making and we have the tendency to get depressed. But if you work on the solution side, there is a very significant optimistic bent to the work that we do. And the answer is yes, we are making a tremendous amount of progress. In fact, I think there is a revolution brewing. And what I'd like to do in two minutes is lay out what that revolution looks like. It is the unbelievable collision of jewels or watts, of miles or meters, and of bits and bytes. It is the coming together of renewable energy technologies that are now the most cost-effective way of generating energy on the planet. And as a result, we will soon see a world where electrons are abundant, ubiquitous, and cheap, or even free. And that completely transforms the way we think about energy. But it is not only energy. It is also about a mobility revolution, a revolution of distance that we couldn't have fathomed even five years ago. We could have maybe dreamed five years ago about solar and wind being competitive. But would you have believed five years ago that we would move from pigs to seals? Pigs, personal, internal combustion, gasoline, steel cars. Seals, smart, electrified, autonomous, lightweight service vehicles. The idea that soon that little car will come dawdling in front of your house or your office or wherever you want to leave from and will take you without you having to pay attention to the destination you want to go to on electric energy, very easy, very simple, very lightweight, and maybe share it with somebody else. So that revolution is happening much faster to a significant extent because the incumbent industries, the automotive industry, don't have this incredible fear of a Kodak moment that the fossil fuel companies have in the energy transition. They're working with us. General Motors, Shell, Ford, um, uh, BMW, Mercedes are trying to raise Uber and Tesla to this same model. And then the third part of the revolution is bits and bytes. All of this will require us to integrate the energy system in a way that we haven't done before. Make seamless the connections between electric mobility and that battery that becomes the backup of an electricity system that is based on solar and wind and where you are dealing with a certain amount of variability and where we can also produce hydrogen in a very cost-effective way that can fire our industry and where all of this is integrated through data, through artificial intelligence, through sensors, through blockchain technology, in a way that is still a little bit over the horizon, but increasingly coming close. All of that is a very uh, beautiful perspective that further gets accelerated by the fact that that we've all signed up to a Paris Agreement. Yes, we've all signed up to a Paris Agreement because there are 195 countries out of 196 that are committed to that agreement. And in the last country that we have to deal with, citizens and cities, And states and industries and universities and investors have also said we are still in. So I believe believe that the political momentum behind this transformation is further accelerating it. So on the whole, I'm very optimistic. And back to your trillion dollars. I think it's actually going to take less. Because when Sears made that projection mm-hmm. some time ago, mm-hmm. it was on the basis of cost numbers that were higher. So probably the most promising thing is we're not going to spend a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
3: That was magnificent. There are a couple, I think, of real game changer technologies as well. And the thing that I think is worth being optimistic about um, is the fact that the arc of technological progress is all ahead of us. Mm -hmm. in tomorrow's energy it's all behind us in fossil fuels we don't have any more big breakthroughs to make Mm -hmm. it's not going to get cheaper the last big breakthrough we made was fracking that was in the 70s we're living off that now Mm -hmm. you know we don't have anything else in the pipeline so to speak um so the two the two really game changer technologies that i you know you see people working on all the time Mm -hmm. and i think you've alluded alluded to a couple one is storage electricity storage battery technology is getting a lot better But there are other things than batteries. There's new kinds of batteries, flow batteries. You know, there's pump storage. There's all kinds of new storage. If we could get to the point where we could store electricity instead of having to use it at the exact moment Mm -hmm. it is made, that would change the whole complexion of the problem. We have the other, and this is a little bit farther afield and a little bit tougher, is carbon capture and sequestration. And there have been a lot of really weird ideas there. There are, I still think that there is promise there, and... The more stuff we put, the more greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the more we need it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if we get to the point where we're beyond two degrees, we're living in catastrophe land.
4: Mm-hmm. And the
3: only thing we can do about it is get the carbon out.
4: Um, well, I guess one thing that I'll just add, a lot of what I might spend time talking about today relates to agriculture and water use and efficiencies there. And, and what's relevant to what both Jules and Julie mentioned is a lot of how we think about conservation really relates to, uh, you can think of it as utilization of resources more efficiently. And uh, across our water use space, there's huge implications for how we use our, our water resources. Mm-hmm. And that relates to very significant implications for how we either uh, release more carbon into the atmosphere on our agricultural spaces or store more carbon. Um, and mm-hmm. the interplay between water in carbon sequestration on on farmland and our food systems is significant, and what makes me optimistic is as the rate of uh, technological advancement in energy has increased, so has it increased in the agricultural space, where now um, the, the rate at which people can adopt said technologies is so much faster that it's becoming more available at a rate that makes me optimistic that we can make change.
0: You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay
3: Smalling, and you can find out more about SOCAP 18 and SOCAP 365 at www.socialcapitalmarkets.net.
1: There's one stat I want to share that I'm really proud to share. In the U.S., job growth in the solar industry has been 17 times faster than the overall economy, and solar now employs more people than oil coal and gas combined i just think that's a
2: really important factor in that and can i just point out that this president has just put a second set of tariffs on solar panels to stimulate that job creation
1: yes <laughs> yeah i was going to get to politics a little later but i'm happy to dive <laughs> yeah, in uh... <laughs> <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong so uh pax global environmental markets fund has surpassed over seven hundred million dollars in committed capital. Is that a correct statement? That I, is, just, I believe. I think it's seven or six million. Is that right? I think it's over. 800. Is 800 it eight hundred million now? Okay. All right. So significant right. growth. If you think about your portfolio today, uh, at least sixty percent of your allocation is committed in public equities. Right. So share with us the strategy, and the learnings that you have so far. So very specifically. So. Uh, following the thread of what uh, Jules was just mentioning. So share how this strategy is contributing to the transition to a low-carbon economy. And then second, how is the ESG data that you're taking in over years of time of, of managing this fund, how are you taking those learnings and reapplying and making shifts in your strategy going forward?
3: So that fund, we, we call it GEM, the Global Environmental Markets Fund, that's its acronym, um, is an environmental solutions fund. So what that fund invests in is... Companies that are offering viable, marketable things that preserve or maintain or provide access to fresh water, that avoid climate change and promote the low carbon transition in energy, that provide for sustainable agriculture and that avoid, that are pollution prevention or waste treatment Mm -hmm. that is innovative and less resource consumptive than what we have now. And those are all, you know, sort of woven into that fund. They're also woven together in many ways. I mean, if you, you know, every landfill is emitting methane like mad, right? So if you can do better mm-hmm. at preventing waste from piling up in landfills, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, eliminate a major source of greenhouse gas pollution. If you can provide technologies where you can treat water that has been used in situ and re-provide it to the people who will need it, mm-hmm. you know, rather than piping it in over miles and miles and then piping your waste back out and then bringing fresh water back in, water weighs nine pounds a gallon. It costs a lot of energy to do it. So if you can avoid that you know, that kind of expense, you know, that actually contributes to your, you know, emissions reduction as well. And that fund has been, it will vary over time. For a long time, it didn't invest in solar, not because we didn't love it. We loved it. Mm -hmm. But the Chinese were deliberately keeping the prices of solar low, which made the investment prospects absolutely horrible. You know, I mean, we invested more in wind and more in other technologies, but things change over time. There's never, you know, sort of an investment environment that is that prevails for a long time. You'd have to be able to roll with the punches and to use another me- metaphor, you know, skate to where the puck is going to be. So what is going to add value in the future? In terms of how we use ESG data, the data on climate are getting better. And the investment community truly has woken up to them. I mean, Ten years ago, when I was talking to people in Wall Street about climate, I was getting patted on the head and put on the kitty table and stuff like that. But not anymore. You've got Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan – you know, Merrill Lynch, all of them, Deutsche, you know, all of them, writing about climate risk. What BlackRock says is you have to pay attention to the shark closest to the boat. And by that, they mean climate change, right? What isn't happening yet, it will, is that we broaden our idea of climate beyond risk and beyond, in particular, regulatory risk. And beyond that, beyond oil and gas, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of risks that climate poses for investors. There are a lot of opportunities. The flip side of every risk is an opportunity. There are also risks and opportunities in both mitigation and adaptation. We very rarely talk about adaptation. But if you're a pharma company, you're going to have to do that, right? You've got the whole landscape of disease, morbidity, and mortality is changing. So you've got like Sanofi developing therapies for dengue fever, not because they want to, you know, sell more in Tanzania, but because they think it's going to be in temperate zones. So there are risks and opportunities for every sector if you're smart enough to see them. The data aren't there yet. Right now, what we have are great data on emissions and carbon footprints. And we can get that for scope one, two, and three. Okay, so scope one are the emissions that come from your own operations. Scope two is the emissions that come from your purchased electricity. And scope three is what happens downstream. So for a utility, you know, they're the biggest emitters on the planet by two orders of magnitude. They're, this is all scope one. It's they burn coal or gas or whatever and produce electricity. That's all scope one emissions. For Ford, that electricity that they produce is a scope two emission, right? But Ford's big impact isn't scope one or two. It's scope three. It's all those cars that they're putting on the road and what they're burning up. So, and then we also are trying to count, we're trying to develop a system to track something that I've just, for the sake of convenience, been calling scope four, which doesn't really exist. It's a made-up term. But you have a lot of companies now in that portfolio that make wind turbines, that make solar panels. All that stuff comes from the earth. It takes energy to get it out of the earth. Lots of times that's fossil energy. So they tend to be industrials and they are are the fourth most energy or um, carbon-intensive sector on the planet behind utilities, energy, and materials. So... But what they make, the wind turbines and the solar panels are helping all their customers save emissions or not emit things. And so they should sort of get some credit for what happens downstream Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. in the same way that Ford gets dinged for what happens downstream with their products. So we're trying to calculate that. It's tough, but we're working on that. For that portfolio, for Jim, we have calculated the impact in terms of emissions saved, energy saved, water saved.
1: I think it's helpful to give an example of what you're holding. So... uh Choose a company. Share an example with the group.
3: There's this wonderful book by a guy named, ironically enough, Charles Fishman. It's called The uh, the Big Thirst. It's about water. And he goes through the example of Las Vegas, which is the, in the middle of a desert. And it's, if you walk, has you been to Las Vegas? You walk down the street, there's all these fountains and you think it's this awful, horrible energy I'm sorry, water intensive city that's in the middle of a desert using water that isn't theirs. And you know, isn't this awful? Go to hell, Las Vegas. They have one of the best water management systems and technologies anywhere. There are people come from all over the world to see what they're doing. Hmm. And some of the companies that do the pumps, pipes, and filtration technologies that allow them to reuse that water on site, make it sen- essentially a closed loop system. Those are really good investments right now. Hmm. And that's a. And they're not water utilities. They're industrial companies like Xylem.
1: So I, I look at conservation as one of the core components of any climate solution strategy, right? And um, now Nature uh, Vest has spawned out of the great work of the nonprofit that we're all very familiar with here, the Nature Conservancy. First, I'll share with the group what Nature Vest's mission is, what you're doing there, and some examples of the work.
4: Sure. So Nature Vest has been in existence for about four years. And we are, for all intents and purposes, the impact investing bank for the Nature Conservancy. Um, And our mission is really to put private capital to work for conservation in the same way um, that our organization is quite talented at putting philanthropic capital to work. Um, And the analogy that I like to use for NatureVest is um, kind of the, the gap between NASA and SpaceX and before you could have SpaceX, you had to have something that could figure it out, right? We didn't really know how to get to space until um, we as a country decided that was worth putting some money into. And TNC, as a philanthropically driven organization, gets to do some really amazing scientific and conservation programming work that could someday be a tool for accepting private capital as a standalone business, as a way to structure fund, other entities, uh, Naturevest is here to try to accelerate that rate of growth between NASA and SpaceX mm-hmm. in whatever the conservation work might be. So today we've put uh, about 200 million of private capital to work across a variety of deals. Um, they include uh, sustainable forestry deals uh, in on the West Coast, uh, a green infrastructure company that really took some uh, innovative TNC science and then some work of other partners. Uh, and built a company that creates green infrastructure and takes advantage of the the, um, stormwater credit market in D.C. Um, And another example is we have a water-based fund in Australia that really takes advantage of some highly developed regulatory markets in the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia Mm -hmm. um, and pairs that up with a happy coincidence between when nature needs water and when the agricultural system needs water.
1: So let's go one step further. So you're, you're on the freshwater team. Um, give me some specific private capital opportunities within freshwater conservation, both domestic and international.
4: When we think about freshwater and climate, typically we think of freshwater as a casualty of climate change. Um, I like to think of it as an opportunity. And Jeff, if you ever want to make a movie about chasing rivers, please come talk to me.
0: Um,
4: the reason that I think we think about freshwater and climate as a happy partner is is in how water gets utilized across the globe. About seventy percent of water goes to producing our food. In water scarce regions globally, like here in Colorado, ninety percent of that uh, of our fresh water is consumed by agriculture, and typically that's at a very inefficient rate. So for us, there's a a compelling conservation case and a very compelling business case to increase the rate of efficiency in our agricultural systems. And that does a couple of things for us. It frees up water for people in nature, which is our first priority. It also increases the sustainability of our food systems in the face of a changing climate. And it can reduce the amount of carbon uh, required to grow our food and, in many cases, um, it can act as a very, very important sink for carbon sequestration, um, which in turn only reinforces the regenerative nature of agriculture. So, mm-hmm. for us, uh, sustainable agriculture in general is a very compelling investment opportunity. We see this uh, locally, nationally, and internationally. And this shows up in a couple of different ways, like companies, uh, like the company that I mentioned in DC. There's companies that we're working on with TNC partners, they can accelerate the rate of adoption of efficiency technologies with uh, farm communities. Think of it as ESCOs for farming. Um, So that's one example. Another example is just sustainable agricultural funds. We're in the process of marketing a fund that can acquire land uh, and and put more efficient land management practices to work as a way to de-risk these approaches for farming communities. They are very scary because farmers operate off of 1% to 2% margin, so asking them to do something different is scary. So we feel that private capital can play an important role in making that happen faster. Uh, And then another opportunity for us is putting TNC science to work with existing impact funds and existing businesses, where we can play a role in uh, either origination of opportunities or in leveraging the the capabilities that TNC has as a science-driven organization, soil health and carbon sequestration and agricultural efficiencies, and make that uh, a core component of existing business models.
1: So measuring impact beyond a company's carbon footprint. What other environmental metrics are you tracking? So at Varus, we always are refi- measuring financial performance, but we take impact outcomes as serious, if not more serious, in every investment we do. So please share your tracking and some specific outcomes you've seen.
3: We try to use the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, mm-hmm. as a framework for measuring impact. Mm-hmm. Some of it is extremely difficult to measure. It's kind of like contributions yeah. to reducing poverty. Well, every company employs people. Does that all count? Mm-hmm. You know, or, mm-hmm. you know, improving human health. You know, it's like so does every pharma company on the planet get credit for that or do they have to do something more than business as usual to count, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, we haven't answered all of those questions. On the environment, it's probably easier mm-hmm. than for most of it because so much of it is so quantifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all of it, right? So you can, for example, get good data, at least for large companies, pretty much around the globe, or at least for ACWI, the All-Country World Index, um, on carbon emissions. And that, the lower you get, the smaller you get in terms of companies, the less likely it is to be real data, the less likely it is to be an estimate. Mm-hmm. And estimates are what they are. I mean, so they're going to be wildly inaccurate in individual cases, but hopefully in aggregate you're getting something reasonable, useful, we have less good data on electricity or energy consumption, mm-hmm. but it's an extremely important thing because it really informs us as to what kind of choices the company is making and what kind of choices they have. Mm-hmm. For an oil company, climate change is an existential risk. For a utility, they have lots of choices, right? Mm-hmm. So when you measure impact for a utility, you take as background the fact that they can switch fuels, that they have other opportunities. So if they haven't, You don't get; they don't get to count. You know what the state RPS is, the state renewable point portfolio standard is. You have to do more than that in order to get credit as impact for a utility. You can get fairly decent data from most developed countries and a few developing countries on things like what your waste production is Mm -hmm. and what happens to it. In the U.S., it's pretty good, although it's never earlier. It's never more current than two years ago. So it's always, you know, data that we're dealing with in the past or things that happened in the past, I should say. But you can find out how much waste was produced, what type air, water, soil, what what was discharged to, whether it went to publicly owned treatment works, whether it was incinerated, you know, so you can measure impact in terms of companies reducing the most impactful waste streams and waste production. And we try to do that, but the data just aren't there to support it yet. So, you know, we're trying to make progress in all of those things, which a lot of times means that what we do is ask companies to produce it. And sometimes we ask them behind the curtain nicely. And when they ignore us, which they often do, then we ask them publicly by filing shareholder resolutions.
0: You're listening to Money and Meaning. You can find out more about SOCAP at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net with a list of our upcoming events, including our annual conference at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, October 23rd to 26th, 2018.
3: The Morningstar ratings, their globe ratings for funds, and they are powered by Sustainalytics. And Sustainalytics is a very well-respected, very competent um, research organization that provides sustainability information about companies and rates a few thousand of them the thing that's good about it is that it is powered by sustainalytics and they have reliable data and sustainability you can drill down in sustainalytics and you know okay was this an estimate or is this real data is this what the company really did or is this what they said they did what was the source of this did it come from the media was it from the company's sustainability report was it audited you know so is a third party verification you can always drill down to that so those are good ratings what isn't so tasty about them is that sometimes there are companies that have absolutely no consciousness of sustainability and aren't doing much, but they don't have much impact either, right? So, I mean, Microsoft doesn't kill whales, I'm sorry, and they don't really bleach coral and, you know, all that stuff. So they're, you know, it's they're going to get a lot of credit for being a very green company, even though they don't... Well, actually, Microsoft is doing a lot now. They've committed to 100% renewable energy. Many of the tech giants have, but... There, A company can get a good rating without necessarily having gone the extra mile just because of the sector they're in or the industry they're in or because there's no data. For a lot of little companies, you know, what do you do with no data? Do you ding them or do you give them credit or, you know, what do you do, right? So there's some uncertainty in the data. And then for funds, so funds will, they change, right? You invest in some things when they're really good ideas. Like if you think all the baby boomers are going to, need healthcare, you invest in pharma because you think that's going to be a growing sector. And so there are times when everybody and their dog is going to be investing in really light impact sectors because they make financial sense, but they didn't mean it. I mean, they didn't invest in them because they're sustainable. They just happen to be there. So you'll see some of those funds have great globe ratings at a time, and you don't know whether that's deliberate or accidental. So, what's going to matter is what the globe rating is over time. So, when the market changes cycles, if you see companies or funds, I'm sorry, that continually have good globe ratings, you know it's because they're trying to do it. But there's no measure of intentionality in those globe ratings. There is a service that is developing to do that, but it's nascent. It's really not quite there yet.
2: I would add one other dimension that I would consider significantly, particularly if you're making investment decisions in individual companies. The transition that we have to make is all about leadership Mm -hmm. and courage and leadership in the business arena when it comes to sustainability is a very scarce commodity because you know what? Among CEOs, your first, second, third, fifth, 17th priority is all about what the analyst wants to hear for the next quarter. And to therefore stand up and say, no, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do this different really is quite unique and you can actually count the leaders that take a forceful position on that on on well not on the fingers of two hands but it's it's a limited group and yet when you see those leaders you know them you recognize them and they often deliver incredibly good results mark benioff of salesforce has stood up and and faced off against this administration not so much on the issue of sustainability but on issues of social inclusion and gender and lgbtq rights Uh, Paul Polman is an outstanding leader on all of the SDGs, but particularly also on uh, the role of fast-moving consumer goods. Um,
3: That's Unilever.
2: uh, That's Unilever. It is hard to find courageous leaders in um, the oil and gas industry. And it is hard to decide that you still want to be in that industry because it may be an industry with a very limited lifetime. But if you wanted to find a courageous leader, I would argue that Shell, and that's not because I work there because but because I look at Chad Holliday and Ben van Burde, is incredibly courageous leader. So it is not easy to find those individuals. But when they are there and when they speak up, they deserve our backing and some of our backing can be with where you place your money.
0: Thanks for listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Liz Maxwell, and we really appreciate you listening with us. You can find more information on our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. We publish a great blog that has lots of conversations and insights into ways that people are moving money for good in the social capital markets. We also want to remind you that if you'd like to attend SOCAP18, you can use the code socap podcast for $250 off of your ticket. And if you do Twitter and social media, you can find us on Twitter at SoCatMarkets and use the hashtag money and meaning to let us know what you think of this episode. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell.
3: You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram.